the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. As we work through our working life, we're oftentimes, when we reach our 50s or so, focused on that special moment, that time when you finally get to walk into the boss and say, that's it, I'm done, and you head off on retirement. When you think about it, there are a lot of good reasons to retire, but if you think even more seriously, there are many good reasons not to retire early, as our host, Financial advisor and retirement planning specialist Pat Fitucci explains. And Pat, boy, it's it's easy to decide that we want to retire. Far more difficult to decide when not to retire early. Yeah, I don't want to talk about this today because I'm I you know most people want to retire early, so let's not even talk about this. I mean, come on, everybody wants to retire early, don't they? Well, maybe not. I have friends. They tell me the worst thing they ever did was retire. They get up, they have their cup of coffee, they read their newspaper. They're done. It's 8.30. What do I do with the rest of the day? My body can't take playing tennis every day. I'm not as motivated. What are you going to do after you quit work? That's the big question. You can't pick up the phone and call your buddies. Hey, let's go fishing. Let's go play golf. Let's go play tennis. Let's go for a drive. They're working. They're tired at night. Remember those days when you worked all day and you fought the traffic and you you finally got home and you're full of energy and spunk and you want to say, wow, let's go out and do something. And there's nobody to go out and play with. They're all still working. So you have to know what you're going to do with your day after you quit. If you're a very social person, if you've got a lot of things on your to-do list and you enjoy doing them, then maybe you are a good candidate to retirement. But I got to tell you, a lot of folks that I counsel, they share with me that it ain't what it's cracked up to be. You know, we all need some intellectual stimuli. And if unfortunately or fortunately, our jobs create that environment that keeps us stimulated and motivated and social. There's always a social aspect. You go out to lunch with your buddies, maybe. Or maybe you go out for a glass of wine after work. It's real important to understand and drill down as to what you are really thinking about. If you hate your job, it is not a reason to retire early. You need to find a different job. So working in an enjoyable environment is actually better than not working at all. Maybe you, you don't like the people you work with. Maybe you don't like your boss, right? It's always the boss's fault why I actually retired. Take a parallel job in a different company. Find a job that doesn't pay as much, but the enjoyment factor is there. you got to really do some introspection as to why you're considering retirement. How about money matters? Do you have enough in your cash flow 
to cover that payroll check that you will not receive any longer. There's the monetary review as well. There's the psychological impacts. We've just covered those. And then there's the real greenback matters. Do you have enough greenbacks coming in? Is your cash flow sufficient enough to keep you in the lifestyle you've grown accustomed? And do not, do not say, well, I'm always going to make 10%. So therefore, I'm in great shape. No, pick a really small number, 4 or 5% perhaps. Be surprised on the upside, but don't put your rose-colored glasses on and say, oh, I'm always going to make 10%, and so I, I can live on 10% of my 401k, my IRA, my savings. Big, big mistake. Always err on the side of being very cautious, have low expectations. It's always nice to have higher returns, and you can buy that car you've always wanted. You can take that trip to where you ever want to go. It's all about, do you have a net worth goal? that you've hit. Have you hit your milestone? That's called critical mass. You can't factor in the equity in your home if you're not going to sell it and buy down or move to a lesser cost area. Take the house right out of the equation. What is your investable dollars? What's a 4 or 5% reasonable return on those investments? And can I live very comfortably with that number. Do we often make a mistake, Pat, in that we might calculate what our critical mass number looks like? And we're kind of watching two numbers. We're watching the number, the bottom line number that comes in on the quarterly statements, and then we're watching the number on the calendar. And when that date hits, we're all ready and charged up to run into the boss's office and fire ourselves, but not really considering the fact that once we hit retirement, Having a budget in place is really important because the overtime check's not going to be coming in anymore. The bonus check will not be there. And so if you haven't calculated what your expenses are going to be in retirement, that can be a critical mistake, can't it? Yeah. uh, Mr. Rosenberg wrote an entire book on the number. It's called The Number. Your number, my number is different from anybody else's. Your critical mass number, how much you need in your pile of cash to say, okay, I'm done. Now I'm working because I really love it. And that critical mass number, that number is different, sometimes significantly, and it's all predicated on your lifestyle. If you're the kind of family or couple or individual that their idea of retirement is sitting in front of the TV watching soap operas all day, that's pretty inexpensive. In fact, it's very low cost. But if your idea of retirement is traveling a couple, three times a year to your favorite place or playing a lot of golf or whatever the issue is, what are the budgetary implications? So it, it is kind of an intersection of your critical mass number has been achieved and your age is such that, you know, you really say, okay, I'm tired now. My body is not holding up to that hour commute any longer. How about discussing it with your family? Certainly you're going to discuss it with your spouse if you are married. It's probably a topic that dominates maybe the dinner topic at night. What do your kids think of of your term? And sometimes you get some real good wisdom from your children. If your parents are still around, talk to them about what they went through in deciding when it was time to pull the plug. Talk to your friends about it. Maybe even talk to a psychologist and finding out What do you get from your job today, and will you be as fulfilled when you pull a plug, and will you have enough stimulation of your everyday living? There are rows of books these days in the bookstore that covers retirement. How about a second career? There's a a book I just bought, Your Second Act, 
And it really talks about what are you going to do for the rest of life, for the next 30 or 40 years. And it's got some wonderful implications. Are you going to be a hunter? Are you going to you take up a bow and arrow? And, or are you going to go join a bowling league? What floats your boat? And having time on your hands is something we just never experienced before. We've always been busy. We get up early. We drive to work. We come home. We're exhausted. We put in a 10 or 12-hour day. And you have just enough energy to... You know, have dinner and sit in front of the boob too for an hour or so, or maybe go for a walk after work. But now you've got the entire day. How are you going to spend it? Are you going to be stimulated, psychologically fulfilled, financially fulfilled? All those issues, I would encourage our listeners to to go to the bookstore, Google Second Act Careers, and does that include volunteering? It is not sometimes an easy transition. A lot of folks have said, you know, it's not what I thought it was. Don't be surprised. Do some research before you go in and tell your boss, hey, boss, sorry, I'm out of here. And finally, Pat, before you tell your boss that, it might be helpful if you have that discussion with your spouse or other individuals maybe in the family that will be directly impacted by your decision, either because the change in income levels or maybe just because you're going to be around the house more. Without a doubt. If you're going to be invading mom's space, her office, which is the kitchen, and you're going to be hanging around, a lot of my retiree clients find it really difficult to reintroduce themselves to their spouse. And now they've got time to reacquaint themselves with each other all over again. And sometimes it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And sometimes it, it's not. So be very uh, mindful of that adjustment for both spouses, especially if you know, you, you've been married and Now you're going to be spending a whole lot of time with each other. So as we've learned, while reaching retirement early might be a laudable goal, just because you have enough money doesn't always mean it's the right choice for you. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Joining me here today in studio, a very familiar voice to KFAX listeners down through the years. In fact, many of us get our day started with him as a part of Daybreak, heard weekday mornings at 6.30 a.m. right here on KFAX. From Church of the Highlands in San Bruno, Pastor Don Sheely and Pastor Don, a delight to have you in studio with us today. Good to be with you, sir. We've got another special guest that we're going to meet in just a moment. And and before we do, I've asked you to join us today as part of this story because it's an amazing part of the way that I believe God um, fulfills the desire of our heart and and how when he puts a burden on our heart to do something for him, um, he will support that, he will encourage that, and he will stoke those fires Mm -hmm. until we have completed that which he has called us to do. Perhaps not many people in the audience know of the story of Pastor Don Sheely and Church of the Highlands and the amazing work that's gone up there in San Bruno for the last 50-something years, and how that um, Church of the Highlands and your work there was kind of a pause for a moment, a long moment, in, in your ministry and in a burden that God had put in your heart in an entirely different direction, even as you have ministered here and led that congregation for so many years, I understand that many years ago, God had put a burden on your heart for the area called Borneo in Southeast Asia. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I think, Craig, the the whole concept of our church has been missions, but it's been unique in that we have had, instead of maintaining missionaries on the field, we have made our missionary uh, missionary goals selecting projects and then we would go to a field and, and evaluate the project and see how, how it could be done and the cost and so forth. And so our congregation over the last 40 years has worked with projects. 
Years ago, we went to Africa and we uh, saw how easy it would be to build churches out in in uh, Africa. So we built churches in Africa. We went to India and um, um, Mark Buntain, the great missionary there in Calcutta, uh, was a close friend of ours. And so we helped Mark select his site for the big hospital there in Calcutta and became a part of that project. And so we've moved around the world, and I have found that by doing it in projects, you can set a, set a goal, you're going to get your congregation tuned into that goal, and that's what's on their mind, and when it's finished, there's a sense of completion, whereas many missionary programs within the church is you send $100 here and $100 there over a period of time. Uh, project goal missionary work has, gives a sense of satisfaction, and so... There's something to be said, too, Pastor Don, about the effectiveness of that, in that there is a certain expense when it comes to preparing a missionary to go overseas. They have to learn the culture. They have to learn the language. There are expenses involved in there. So many of your projects have been oriented toward training up local missionaries, meaning in-country nationals who don't have language barriers, who don't have to raise huge amounts of money because they're local, and as a result, the level of effectiveness in helping to sort of um, um, naturally see sort of an organic growth of the church in country uh, has been extremely successful, hasn't it? Yeah, we for many years, in other words, we select an area of the world and probably concentrate there for two or three years. Some years ago, we selected the Philippine Islands. And down in Mindanao, there was a training center there for the locals for mission work. And so we purchased, I think it was 40 acres, and we planted a rubber plantation with, I think, 1,100 rubber trees. Now that plantation underwrites all the cost mm-hmm. for operating that training center. And so uh, the joy of getting a project done brings great excitement. But what you do when you move the projects every three years, you change the focus of the congregation. And uh, what brought us to Borneo, Craig, was... We had spent a lot of time working in the Philippine Islands, and we ventured across the uh, border from Malaysia into Indonesia. About 30 minutes in, there was this uh, uh, work of for orphans, and we, of course, helped very much. We built many of the classrooms and were involved. We sent in a back hole digger and so forth. But one day, we were talking about the mission work there in Borneo, and the uh, builder who had come there to help in Mount Hope told us about Ronnie's ministry deep in the jungle. Now, that fascinated me. I thought, now, go to the middle of the jungle and create a, a ministry. So I said, the next time we come, we've got to go find this man in the middle of the jungle. So as a result, uh, we made it there. It was a very, very difficult road to get there. It's about 12 hours of washboard roads. And it was late in the evening. We'd been delayed because of cart problems and so forth, and probably 11 o'clock at night. And we were right in the middle of the jungle, and all of a sudden we came over the top of a hill, and I saw all these streetlights of a city. And it absolutely thrilled me that, how do you build a city? in the middle of the jungles. And as soon as we arrived, uh, we, of course, met Ronnie, and we became fascinated. Here is an 800-acre project or more with a goal of a 1,000 children, schools, medical centers, hospitals, airfield. I mean, it's a complete city. 
And I've always enjoyed working with men who have great minds, who have a great dream. Way back in the uh, 70s, we visited Korea. When Dr. Hong, who had a Christian school there, he would uh, he had escaped from North Korea. Today, he has a Christian school of 16,000 children. But a tremendous vision. God can do anything. And when I met Ronnie, I thought to myself, here's a guy that's much like Dr. Hong. He has a vision, and uh, he has a simple faith. And when I walked around that campus that day and saw about 60 buildings, and realizing that all that building material had to be brought in through that crazy road, and um, to see it, to see those hundreds and hundreds of children having a marvelous time, sitting there in the uh, cafeteria, eating, going to their schools, I thought, now here's a project that we would like to become a part of. Wasn't there part of this, Pastor Don, that was kind of fulfillment of a burden that had been on your heart for many, many years? Correct. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was my understanding that you had a burden to head off to Borneo to do missions work there right. at the point at which God called you to Church of the Highlands. So it was almost as if God paused that for a moment, gave you another assignment, and then when you completed or fulfilled that work, God said, okay, time to pick up where we left off almost five decades ago. When we entered the ministry, we had a missions burden. So we were going to act as a fill-in uh, missionary for missionaries who came home on furlough. And so they sent us over to Hong Kong, or they set up our apartment and sent a car over. And we got stuck in a church. So I've had a, a, a detour for 50 years. We, um, I always wanted, I love missionary work, but we got stuck in mission, work doing here. And uh, as a result... Had a great place to get stuck, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, the, the dream was always been... And then, Craig, there's a, a fascination inside me. Where is the end of the world? Go to the ends of the mm. world. Um, well, so when we had our Bible college in Ukraine back in 89 when the Iron Curtain fell, here's Siberia. I thought, I'd like to go to Siberia. And so I talked with a couple missionaries, and we ended up in Magadan, Siberia, which is as far from uh, as far as you can get in the Russian country. And um, we started a, a Bible college in Magadan, Siberia. And as a result of that, um, that part of the world now has, has pastors that are pastoring many of the churches. And so Borneo has always fascinated me because I know that it's one of the uh, most, uh, uh, probably the most, trying to think of a word, we're so backward. I mean, no, it's not, it's not modern. Uh, it's a good definition of uttermost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uttermost. It's uttermost. And so I always wanted to go there. And when I heard about Ronnie's project, I thought, here's our opportunity. And, of course, Tony, being our missionary pastor, has been by my side. And uh, when I got to Ronnie's project, I knew we had uh, reached a uh, project that I believe, Craig, with all my heart, and I say this in Ronnie's presence, this will go down as one of the great missionary endeavors of the, of the century. You know, we understand the concept of Judea and Samaria, and, and hopefully as believers we all have a passion for the Lord to share our faith with others. 
and in doing so can reach our Judea and venture out occasionally into Samaria. Um, getting that uttermost, though, um, we know we need to pray for that. We know it needs to be reached. But I wonder how many of us pray and say, Lord, send me to the uttermost that I might fulfill your great commandment and great commission. And Ronnie Habor, who is with us today, and and Ronnie, as we mentioned, um, is the director of Living Waters Village in Borneo. And in fact, there's a brand new book out that both Ronnie and Pastor Don Sheely have co-authored together, telling the story of this miracle zone. In fact, that's the title of the book, Miracle Zone in the Jungles of Borneo. When we come back, we'll travel into the deepest jungle of Borneo, the Miracle Zone as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with our special in-studio guest today, Pastor Don Sheely from Church of the Highlands, speaker on Daybreak, heard weekday mornings at 6.30 a.m. here on KFAX. And with us from Borneo, yes, you heard right, Borneo, is Pastor Ronnie Habor. They are co-authors of a brand new book called Miracle Zone in the Jungles of Borneo. Pastor Ronnie, let me bring you into the conversation here. This is a part of the world that is very far-reaching. It is 15, 18 hours by airplane and other means to get into where you're at. You're in a, a dense jungle region as part of an island chain in there that I think, um, well, certainly Indonesia, 17,000-something islands in that part of the world. Um, and you're right there in the heart of the jungle and right there in the heart of Dayak country. I, the same question for you. As God brought... Pastor Don Sheely, full circle 50 years later back into the mission field and wound up at the uttermost. What about yourself? What was the attraction, the draw to this part of the world? And folks will hear in a moment an accent that they will know is distinctly not uh, not Dayak. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. Uh, yeah, for me it was, um, we, my wife and I didn't really, uh, we weren't worried where God was going to send us. The outermost parts of the world, well, the world is the world. Um, there are some places that are near, some places that are far, some places that are the outermost parts. But for us, it was just like, God, where, wherever you want us to go, wherever you want us to send us, we'll go. And uh, a door opened up in, in Borneo, and um, uh, we, I didn't even know really where Borneo was. Um, in fact, uh, many years, people used to call me the wild man from Borneo, and I don't know whether you have heard of this, oh, this yes. term, but it actually is to do with the, the orangutan. You know, the orangutan is the wild man of Borneo, and there are other, some other people that have been named uh, that as well. But uh, uh, because I was so passionate for God, they used to call me the wild man from Borneo, but I had no idea where Borneo was until uh, God sent us there, in a way. And uh, I went there on my own first with somebody, not with my wife, but just to do some uh, um, really for my friend who had a passion for one of the islands in Indonesia uh, but um, God told us in an all night prayer meeting to go to Borneo as well and we thought uh, this other friend of mine had had to see uh, this place or maybe he has to meet people to get his visa that way or whatever but um, anyway w- when we ended up in Borneo first um, I just was so excited my heart raced like anything and I just knew that it was it was like I uh, the feeling you know you, you just arrived home mm-hmm. and uh, I just knew that God was calling us there but I didn't tell anything uh, to anybody until I got home and I told my wife I said 
you know, darling, I really believe God is calling us to Borneo. Back she your goes, bags. Yeah, she goes, right, well, when are we going? So, um, so yeah, that's where it all starts. This, so, is not, this is not an easy mission field to work in. I mean, beyond the conditions, as, as Pastor Don Sheely mentioned, we're talking about in the middle of the jungle. We're not in developed areas. We're talking about literally what needs to be brought in has to be brought in by mule, practically. Yeah. And you're working in an area of the world that, uh, quite frankly, is very hostile to the message of the gospel. Yeah, so, so it's probably just as well God doesn't sort of fill you in on all those things that you know all time, those yes. things before, <laughs> and you see, because I think, I think if I had known now, if God would have sent me a letter from heaven, you know, twenty something years ago, uh, before we left, and would and would have said that uh, this is all, this is where I'm going to place you, and I'm going to take you to Borneo, and you're going to be in a wild area there, and you're going to eat dog and rat, and going to be throw you in prison for a while and you're going to do this and this and this uh, I think I would have sort of said God um, I think you should call somebody else well, I don't think I'm cut out for this sort of thing yeah, you know, the Paul I, on the I would have, road might have said the same yeah. thing I, I don't think yeah. I've signed so I, I, I think I would have run the other way like Jonah so just mm-hmm. as well God doesn't show you everything but you, you've got to put your trust in God. And if God says to go, then you're to go. Even if it doesn't make sense, and even though it is the ends of the earth, and even though it's as rough as anything, um, God is always there. I found I found that over the years that that uh, God has never promised, he's never sort of said that you never ever will have any problems in your life, right, if you become a Christian. But he has said that he will always be with you. And we've always experienced God's presence with us, no matter where we were and what dangerous situation we were in or what terrible situation we were in, God was always there with us to get us out of there. And uh, Some listening might say, but, but uh, Ronnie, there had to have been a moment when you paused. I mean, you, you had a young family. Now, your kids are all grown now and, and, and some attending university, but you, you had a young family at the time to pick up, leave Australia, you're generally in the same part of the world, but you're moving into significantly more hostile territory than uh, downtown Sydney. Anyway, yeah, for sure. Um, you're going into an area that hasn't been ventured into by many. You're going there with the purpose of establishing what ultimately becomes a massive orphanage and school, a, a lighthouse, really, in that part of the world. Um, and, of course, you have no idea what God's end plan is going to be. Was there a moment when you paused and said, Lord, do you really? I mean, yeah. Borneo, really? Well, what about my family? What's my wife going to think? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Before I, we left to Borneo, God, I, I'll never forget. I was in my bedroom, and uh, and um, God said to me in my bedroom, he said, um, are, you, are you prepared to give up everything? Are you really prepared? Now, you think about this. Are you really prepared to give up everything As, before you go? You, you need to be prepared to give up everything. And I said, I'm, I'm prepared. I'm prepared to give up everything. I mean, you know, we, we already gave up our, our, our good jobs that we had and we, we gave up our house, we, all the money that we had. We, we gave all that up. And I said, so I'm prepared. And then he goes, but are you really prepared? Think about it now. Are you really prepared to give up everything? So I said again, I'm prepared. And he goes, are you prepared to give up your family? Mm. And I said, what do you mean? I mean, my first wife died in a car accident years before, and uh, I almost lost my two older children in that car accident, but they pulled through miraculously, but my wife died. And she'd just become a Christian, so we had sheer hell for eight years when I became a Christian until she she uh, uh, came to the Lord. So, And then finally she became a Christian, and then, and then God takes her home. And then, so I said to him, what do you mean, God? I mean... You already have one of my wives. Do you want my other one as well? You know, I mean, I don't understand. 
And uh, but he said again, "Are you really prepared to give up even your family?" And I I thought about this really hard, and uh, I just all of a sudden started to cry and weep, and because I knew that God meant, you know, look, I'm sending you there, but you need need you need to be prepared to give up your family, and uh, so. I cried and cried and I said eventually I said yes yes I'm even prepared to give up my wife and my children as a result so that didn't mean to say that I'm going to lose my wife and kids but the possibility is there somebody said to me before in our church before we left brother Ronnie you know I think you're a real idiot <laughs> I said oh gee thanks thanks appreciate all the confidence yes. <laughs> he said no he said look he said that you go over there that's you know to this this primitive country over there he said uh, where there's still cannibals, which are not, but people still eat, you know, kill people and eat some of their meat and that, but they're not cannibals. They're, that's just, they do that as a part of their ritual. But um, he said, you know, that, that you go over there and that you might be eaten up by these people or and if you're not going to be eaten up, that you'll then maybe die of malaria or typhoid or, or uh, hepatitis or, or any of the diseases that float around there. And he says, you know, that you go, that's, that's one thing. But you take your family with you, you know, what sort of a man are you? And I, and I said to the guy, I said, you know, gee, thanks for your encouragement, you know. But, <laughs> you, you know, you're right. There are 100 and, and so many uh, reasons why we shouldn't go. All the things that you just said. And I said, I can add a whole lot of extra to it. I said, but you forget one thing. He said to go. And even though it doesn't make sense, and even though we know it's dangerous, and even though we know, you know, we're gonna, there's going to be conflict and there's going to be all sorts of things there, I said, he said to go. So, you know, you've got two options. Isn't it amazing how we will get caught up on all of the reasons not to do something, not to be obedient, not to f- follow through on what God has called us to do. Yeah, but this is and where... And we look right past the one reason why we should... And I guess at the end of the day, in this case, even though there's a laundry list of all of the logical reasons why uprooting your young family and taking them lock, stock, and barrel into the middle of the jungle to do a ministry down there was a bad idea. But the one important thing as to why you should is because he said so. Yes, and he, and he said so. So you've got two options. You either obey or you disobey. And if you, even if you know... Look, the day that we ask Jesus to come into our lives is really the day that we surrender everything over to him. I mean, we say it, but do we actually mean it? And then we, then we negotiate with yeah. God about what you, we want to take back. Yeah, you cannot. You either serve God full on or not at all. Mm. You know, you, can't, you cannot give him a list, you know, I'll serve you, but on my conditions. We serve him, we, we surrender everything over to him because he bought our lives. And so he bought my wife and my children as well. So I've got to be able to trust him that... He's going to be there with us, and he'll look after us. And if my wife has to be sacrificed or my kids or myself, you know, then so be it. I believe that nothing happens to a, a Christian who's doing the will of God without his permission. That doesn't mean to say nothing happens to the person, but it means that, that God decides the last day. You know, I get kids now that live with us. We've got 500 children now at our place, and sometimes they say, Dad... You know, they'll run up to me and say, you know, I had a dream last night that they, they killed you, they shot you. And I said, you know, darling, don't, don't worry about that. I said, nobody's going to shoot me without his permission. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that I won't be shot, but I'm just saying without God's permission, he decides when it's my last day, not, not the enemy, not somebody else. So you don't have to worry about that. Well, if you survey all of this and keep it in, in proper perspective, at the end of the day, you know, Paul said it very well. What's the worst that can happen? To be absent 
from the bodies to be present with the Lord. Yeah. What more can they? What worse thing can they do to me? But assure me that I'm going to meet my Savior so much sooner. Yeah. That's for the believer. Not such a bad proposition, is it? Amen. When we come back, a look at the amazing work that God is doing in this part of the world that some thought had been forsaken. I'm Craig Roberts. Our special guest today, Pastor Don Sheely, speaker on Daybreak, weekday mornings at 6.30 here on KFAX, and Ronnie Habor, together co-authors of a new book, Miracle Zone, in the Jungles of Borneo. We'll be back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this special edition of Lifeline. With me today in studio is a very familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He's Pastor Donald Sheely, host of Daybreak, heard weekday mornings at 6.30 a.m. right here on KFAX, and Ronnie Habor. Together, Pastor Sheely and Ronnie Habor have written this exciting new book called Miracle Zone in the Jungles of Borneo. Talk to us about the work down there. Um, You got into that part of the world, and a lot of this is really bootstraps up type of ministry. You, you just can't pick up the phone and say, send me and have it delivered overnight, can you? Well, it's getting better now, actually. Uh, we're there now 20 years, and uh, 12 years we've got this ministry that we're doing now. We've started up a num- number of ministries over the years, but this one is now about 12 years. And so we've seen from our terrible roads going there that the roads are improving slightly uh, for a while at least anyway and before they get bad again but um, and uh, one monsoon season will fix that yeah <laughs> yeah and um, like we just just uh, recently we, we got a telephone telecom mast uh, up the road there a couple of kilometers up the road and so now we have signal there with our handphones we no longer have to have a special dish pointed to somewhere you know with a piece of wire and and finally jump up and down when we get do get a signal we actually can get a signal now so uh, things are moving on. Uh, sometimes, not for not, not for better. You know, sometimes it's uh, more detrimental than anything else. But yeah. uh, uh, we realise that the the world is moving rapidly into these places as well, uh, looking for uh, all sorts of things. And the tribal people are then introduced to all sorts of things. And it's going actually. We're seeing that it, it sometimes is uh, going too fast, and it has devastating uh, results on the people. So. The, the encroachment of the world on the end of the world, so mm. to speak, or, or the farthest to reach of the world, I should say, yeah. and all of that means. Does that give you a, a sense of urgency, not only because of that encroachment? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The, the, it's, you know, you, I get to sometimes to uh, tribes there, so deep in the jungle, and uh, I, I'll never forget, uh, years ago, we I drove for three hours, I went in a speedboat for seven hours and I walked for nine hours to get to this tribe. And then finally I get down into the valley and I see all these, all these huts there and then uh, as, I, as I come into this village, I see this guy way up in the canopy of the trees there and I thought surely this is not correct what I'm seeing, you know. But the guy was actually SMSing on a phone. I mean he had barely any clothes to wear. He didn't have any shoes to wear. I mean, the kids were, um, you know, hu- were hungry, you could tell. But the guy had a handphone up there and he was having a, a signal up there, way up 30, 40 meters in the tree. And he could get a signal and he was texting. Texting there. So <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, you've got to be joking, you know. But, but um, I realized then this is a whole new world that we are um, approaching and uh, that we need to get the gospel to these people before the world gets to them, you know. 
you'll see a photo of Michael Jackson and a can of Coca-Cola there, but they don't know about the Lord Jesus yet, you know, and you think, oh, my goodness. You know, so for us, it's it's important. And, like, these, you know, these uh, texting messages and these phones, you know, one way you can say, well, well, it opens a whole new world for them. It's a good thing. It is a good thing in some ways, but it brings a lot of garbage in there as well, like pornography and all sorts of stuff has brought in into that place there, and it's it's devastating for a, a lot of the tribes. Talk to us about disseminating the message. You're going into an area where there's cultural chasms that you have to cross, linguistic ones, um, and then, of course, you've got the, the influence of Islam all around you kind of pressing in. Give us a snapshot. People wonder, well, what's it like to do ministry down there, aside from the fact that you're dealing with difficult conditions um, in terms of the spiritual conditions? What does that look like? Well, we basically, um, uh, the tribal people there are, um, are animistic. So we, don't, we really don't deal much with uh, uh, Muslims. We do have Muslims living around us. But when you go deep into the jungle areas, you won't come across hardly any Muslims. They're mainly uh, animists. And so animists are uh, people who believe in spirits and all sorts of things and trees and objects and all sorts of things. So, um, And then every tribe has their own witch doctor and the witch doctor lords it over the people. These are the people. It is not the, the tribal chief that has the most power. It's the witch doctor definitely who has the most power. And the, he lords it over these people. The people are extremely fearful of these these uh, witch doctors and um, so uh, when you come into a place like that of course um, uh, you're a threat to somebody like that with authority and uh, but but I've noticed that over the years that God um, uh, always comes up with a brilliant way of getting to the tri- to the to the witch doctor and uh, it's usually through a power encounter you know you can you can talk until you're blue in the face about Jesus Christ and all that sort of thing a witch doctor ain't going to buy any of that but if you, if he can see the power of God upon your life and through you, that God uses you as you pray for people, as you, as you speak into people's lives, and uh, it, um, and and he can see the power of God, then he's blown away, and and then he's prepared to listen because you have something that he doesn't have. He has power, and I've seen some of these witch doctors with incredible power, but you know he. Uh, I, we always say, but our God is, is much greater, much more powerful than any other witch doctor. And uh, I'll just give you, give you an example. We had this little girl that we came into a village and she had meningitis. And um, already four days, she was absolutely uh, erect. She, she couldn't walk anymore. She couldn't talk anymore. She was about nine or ten years old. And uh, she was just a wreck, dehydrated like anything. And uh, uh, we came in and we just... Uh, uh, saw her and we knew, we knew that she needed a doctor but we put our hands on her and we just said little girl in the name of Jesus be healed that's it and she, this little girl got healed and the witch doctor was completely blown away and he, he was so upset he was in a way upset but he was so amazed and he was upset because he couldn't do because people come to him to for healing and uh, sometimes they actually get healed so I say witch doctors have some power sometimes can cause a fire just to happen just like that he would just snap his fingers in a fire you know that i'm blown away at what whoa i've never seen this happen before uh and things like that so people go to the witch doctor and pay this man whatever he wants in order to get a healing but when you come in there and you override that power that he has you know that jesus christ overrides that power then he's willing to listen pastor Sheely, this is really 
powers and principalities in high places. This is spiritual warfare. Correct. The likes of which many Western Christians don't really understand, do they? No, I think, you know, living here in the Western world, most of us do not understand how intense the spiritual powers are in some of these countries. And, um, you know, you really have to have a touch of God on your life, as Ronnie has explained, expressed, because to deal with the spiritual issues, when you walk into it, you, you can actually feel, you feel demonic powers present. And um, so the, the, the challenge, uh, if a person went there just to be a professional missionary, he'd be gone in a few days. But to go there with a burden and a touch of God on your life, as Ronnie has said, and you can see God at work in the lives of these people, um, it's an experience that, that you can't explain. And this is not casual Christianity. This is not cultural Christianity. This is, I may lose my life because of who I name as Lord and Savior. Christianity. Absolutely. This is the battle for hearts and minds between goodness and evil and dark and light and the enemy himself and very God himself. This is that battle being played out right in front of our very eyes. Very much so. And I think Ronnie has in a number of situations where he's had to deal, even with children who have been possessed and uh, they have their curses that have been placed upon them. And, uh, but to deal with intense spiritual concerns. And I've been in the ministry for a number of years. And maybe only once or twice have I had to deal with intense demonic involvement. But they're in the jungle. That's where they live with. And it really puts a perspective on all that we see in the New Testament. And I think... It, as much as there are some Christians in the West, Ronnie, that would look at the book of Acts, for example, as a history book and not realize that, yes, while it does give an account for what happened in the early church, in the early days of the establishment of the body of believers following Christ's resurrection, that it is also demonstrative of what real, authentic Christianity is all about, that we hear about miracles of mm-hmm. demons being cast out or the blind scene or the lame walking in, and we think, well, wasn't it nice that God used to do those things? And we don't realize that that is a part of God's world functioning every single day. Oh, absolutely. And that he uses these demonstrations of power, largely as we see again throughout the book of Acts, amazing to see almost every time that somebody was healed, then word spread about, absolutely. and everybody in the village came to Christ. Yeah. Uh, the thousands uh, were then led to see him as uh, not just a good man who walked the earth, but rather as truly being God himself. If you've just tuned in, our conversation today with Pastor Don Sheely, host of Daybreak, heard weekday mornings at 6.30 here on KFAX, and Ronnie Habor, together co-authors of a new book, Miracle Zone in the Jungles of Borneo. When we come back... We thought God had gotten out of the miracle business. The difference between miracles in the West versus what God is doing overseas. As this edition of Lifeline continues. 
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.